Our passage today comes from Joel, chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through 32a. Then afterward I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days I will pour out my spirit. I will show portents in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day, for the time that we have to bring our whole selves before you to still ourselves, to be reminded of what matters in life. Be with us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning to you again. It's good to be able to be here with you today um, to speak to you a little bit about um, the title, I think, is uh, Setting Things Right. Um, I think all of you, uh, or those of you at least who've been coming and, and kind of following along, you know we've been uh, moving through a, a sermon series called God for Us, which has been on the Minor Prophets. And uh, the Minor Prophets are uh, you know, these prophetic figures, and they're called minor, not because they're under 18, uh, but because they didn't write as much as the major prophet. That was a pretty good joke. I thought that was a pretty good joke, but that just did not work, right? My, my son's back there. He's like, no, no, that was a dad joke. Um, Sarah, I think she's talked a little bit, and, you, and she's mentioned, you know, there are 12 uh, minor prophets. And, of course, the idea, right, the image is the 12, calling the 12 tribes back, which is typically what a prophet did. Um, Sometimes in uh, in rabbinic literature, these prophets are also pulled together, and it's known as the Book of the Twelve, uh, where you'll find all these uh, these different writings, and they deal with different kinds of topics like justice, um, prayer, faithfulness. We've heard uh, some of these topics actually engaged today. Also, compassion, of course, is another big one. Um, and today, one of the key themes that we're going to talk about is the day of the Lord. Um, so I'm going to be talking, the particular prophet I want to talk about today is uh, the prophet Joel. And um, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, like if you've read the Bible a little bit, or maybe you've, you know, grew up going to churches, you've probably, chances are pretty good, you've probably heard a quote or a passage from Joel, in part because uh, Joel goes on to have many afterlives. He winds up getting uh, quoted in other texts, uh, particularly the passage, actually, that we referenced today. Uh, that passage winds up playing a really big role in the beginning of the Christian church. Um, and uh, there's only three chapters in the book of Joel, so if you haven't read any Old Testament books and you're interested in reading one, that's a pretty good selling point. Three chapters, that's pretty not too bad. It's basically bad stuff's happening, it's going to be okay. That's kind of the outlay of Joel. So those are the two big themes. Um, interestingly enough, um, even though uh, Joel would be relatively familiar because maybe, you know, 
you've run across a passage or heard it quoted, or maybe you've run across a passage in, in another text. We don't really know very much about who Joel was. Um, we, all we know is the name, actually. We don't know when this text was written. Um, there's no consensus, at least, on that. And so it makes it hard to pinpoint the historical context uh, to which Joel is responding. Um, now, even though that's the case, one of the things that you can uh, surmise if you just read through Joel is that there, there is certainly a response to a, a massive event of devastation, and it appears to be some kind of ecological devastation. Joel talks a lot about what, what sounds like a, a locust plague, and, uh, and this, is a, this is, of course, a phenomenon that would be uh, folks in the, in, in the Middle East or Western Asia would be familiar with this. It might also refer to the, these locust images, could also maybe refer to some sort of a military invasion that people living in Palestine were experiencing. Um, one commentator that I was reading and sort of thinking along with as I was um, trying to digest and make sense of Joel described this book as, um, as a kind of trauma literature, a form of trauma literature where Joel is trying to process this massive social trauma that has happened to the people because this locust plague doesn't just come in and wipe out crops, it comes in and, and leaves mass devastation behind because of all the social ramifications of losing that source of food, not just the food in the field, but the food that's been stored up, the food that's in the house. There's these images of these locusts making their way into people's rooms, bedrooms, etc. So there's a massive locust plague that has destroyed the agriculture, the commerce, and really threatens to destroy the social order itself, the fabric of the social order itself. And Joel, drawing, the author drawing from these images, really, probably from within a broader prophetic tradition, um, likens what is happening to his society at this moment as the day of the Lord. And so this is where this passage, the day of, this is where this theme, the day of the Lord, which I mentioned earlier, it actually shows up twice um, in a mere three chapters, this image of the day of the Lord. Now, what, what is the day of the Lord? Now, this is a, this is a pretty important um, image, theme uh, that you can find in the Old Testament. It makes its way also up into the New Testament. Probably before the prophets start using this phrase, it has a life of its own, and more than likely, it was a way of describing a day of rescue, right? Uh, in the ancient world, people always were living uh, with a certain amount of uncertainty and insecurity and fear, and that might have been agricultural fear, or that might have also, of course, been fear of violence, military fear. And so uh, when an overwhelming power is coming towards you, you know, the, the hope, the only hope really you have is some sort of divine intervention. And that was probably one way of describing that moment of rescue, of salvation, literally. And that's where the terminology salvation actually comes from. It doesn't sort of begin as religious terminology. It begins as political terminology. 
that's the day of the Lord. God is going to come and rescue us. Now, the prophets take up that image, the day of the Lord, and they kind of twirl it around a little bit, which is what, what prophets do. They don't make things easy on you. Um, and you're going to hear about this, I think, too, when uh, Jeff comes to speak to you about the prophet Amos. Amos really is probably the first of, a, of the prophets, either Amos or Isaiah. It's not clear. The first one to use the terminology day of the Lord in Scripture. And, um, and what Amos does and, and what Isaiah does is that they take this phrase that most people would um, associate with a good thing, and they say, no, it's not just a good thing, it's also a bad thing. The day of the Lord is also a day of judgment, right? And that's really what one of the things that we see, certainly uh, Joel uh, picks up on that. So it's a mixed bag, this day of the Lord. It's a day of judgment. Um, and not just a day of judgment on the nations, the people that are oppressing, but even also Israel. Now, one of the things that I like about Joel is, uh, or one of the things that I came to appreciate, actually, I should say, as I was kind of reading through Joel. Um, sorry, my mouth is getting very dry. Um, is that he also retains that positive side of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, yeah, it is a day of, of judgment, of um, being held to account, but it's also a day of new life, um, a day of renewal, in a sense. And uh, we might even say that, that the imagery that Joel employs, particularly in the passage that we have, is an image of uh, being refreshed. Oh, look at that. Someone's bringing me water to refresh my, to, to refresh my whistle. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much. Okay. Mm, like the spirit being poured out. So, so the first part then of, of Joel, that, that first chapter, is, is where he talks about uh, this locust plague. Um, and that this is, this is likened to the day of the Lord. And somehow, therefore, Israel is probably responsible to some extent to what they're experiencing. Maybe there was land mismanagement. Maybe there was something like that. Joel doesn't really tell us that. And, um, and he certainly, Joel does sort of say, hey, uh, Israel, you, you, know, you need to turn back to God. But then he pivots and he puts a lot of emphasis on what God is going to do on Israel's behalf. Um, and this is where I think this beautiful vision of life comes through, Joel. <clears throat> what we might call a promise of renewal. And there's a passage just prior to the one that I read that I think is, is absolutely really beautiful. I want to read this. I think this is from verses 21 through 23. It says, Do not fear, O soil, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their fruit their full yield. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God, for the Lord has given the early rain for your vindication. The Lord has poured down 
for your abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before. In response to the loss of crop, which means the loss of life, which might mean the loss of the, of, of the social whole, God promises renewal in the form of rain, that God is going to pour out to bring the fields back, to bring the green back. And one of the things that's so beautiful about this, right, is that God talks to the soil and the animals, that they matter just as much as the people, right? So this, this ecological destruction that has happened is not just... Um, it's not just about the human characters and actors. It's about the whole together. And then that image of pouring out water, it's, 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 it flows in, it's, it's repackaged and reformulated. And what do we hear in our passage? We hear about the pouring out of the Spirit. As the passage says, then afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, <clears throat> and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Pouring out of the spirit. If the pouring out of rain means the rejuvenation of the body, the rejuvenation of the land, the pouring out of the spirit means the rejuvenation of the imagination. It means the, re, the refiring of the soul, the recentering of the people to live in a new way. And who is it given to? The text tells us it's given to all flesh. That's a universal argument. And it's not just, uh, it's not just that it's given to even just to the people of Israel. It's given to all people. And I think that becomes particularly the case as you move into the New Testament. And as you read in here, you see no one is exempt. The elders will dream dreams, which is such an interesting thing, right? Because typically, when you're older, you're told you don't have any dreams left. <laughs> and, uh, and I've got some of my friends in here who might be considered elders, and they would say, no, that is not true. But... Young people aren't supposed to see visions either because they're not wise enough, right? But what do we hear that the Spirit is going to do? It's going to reverse that. Men, women, no one, right? even this troubling phrase about pouring it out on slaves, no one is exempt. No one is outside what God is going to do. From top to bottom, the whole is going to be renewed. All of them are going to dream dreams, and all of them are going to see visions. Now, why? Now, this is obviously a, a beautiful promise, um, and one that goes on to have afterlives. I mean, in the New Testament, in, in, in the book of Acts, we see the event of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. But that's not the only event where the, the Spirit gets poured out. It gets poured out later again and again and again on people whom 
the early Jewish Christians would have thought, God surely is not going to give those people the Spirit. What does God do? Gives them the Spirit. It keeps going. It keeps happening. Why does God do this? I think the reason, and this is what I want to challenge you to think about today, is that this is an act of setting things right. This is part of what it means that God wants to set things right. The giving of the Spirit is a part of that process. And the image of the Spirit being poured out and you and I being allowed, being given dreams to dream and visions to see, means that we get to participate in God's work of setting the world right. We're not left out of the process. We're actually included in the process. You, you're given a dream, you're given a vision, not so it just stays in your head, not just so that it's your own private fancy, but so that it shapes the way that you live, so that it flows out of you into the lives of others. We get to participate in God's work of setting things right. Now, as I was thinking about this and thinking about how do I take this imagery that feels like it's up here and brings it down, I, I got uh, sucked into one of those rabbit holes that sometimes happens on the internet, and I discovered the writing, or not the writing, but the work of uh, Howard Finster. Have any of you heard of Howard Finster? One person, yeah. Of course you have Tom. <laughs> so Howard Finster um, was probably one of the most sought-after folk artists of the latter half of the 20th century. He died around 2001 or so. And he came from an area that I'm a little bit familiar with. My, my father grew up probably two or three hours from... Um, where he was from. He was from Somerville, Georgia, which is in the North Georgia mountains, just about an hour or so south of Chattanooga. It's a very impoverished area. And um, he was a preacher for the a little while, first part of his life, but he was also a very talented artist. And uh, he said in 1970 that he had a vision from God, just a message, sort of, um, that he needed to start making sacred art. Now, um, his art process was was found art. It was kind of you know, so you you go out and you find a piece of junk and you repurpose it. And uh, most of his art is made on, uh, you know, used pieces of wood, reclaimed pieces of metal. Um, do you have that image that I share with you? This is one of the most famous pieces. This is actually on display in uh, the High Museum in Atlanta where he repurposed this old trash can and turned it into this extraordinary piece of art. Well, eventually he started working um, in this sort of swampy area around Somerville and he reclaimed the land, and he turned it into this place called Paradise Garden. And he filled it with all kinds of bizarre and strange pieces of work that were so stunning 
and beautiful. And he called himself a man of visions. He kept seeing, and man, he was a weird guy. Trust me. He's what people in my neck of the woods call a character. You know? But as I was reading, um, I, I found all these really interesting quotes of people and their encounters with him. One person said that as you entered into Paradise Garden, there were all these different signs. And he loved to like make a piece of art and then write on it. And sometimes he would write scripture on it, and sometimes he would write other things on it. Um, that one uh, oil drum that you saw, right, had that great, like, care for the earth. It's the only, way to put, only place you have to put your house, which is another way of saying this is your home, right? And uh, anyway, they said that there was one sign that said, I built this park of broken pieces to try to mend a broken world. Pretty awesome. One journalist said, um, generous and charismatic, Finster had thousands of friends from all walks of life. Even chance encounters transform people and change the trajectory of their lives. For me, seeing the way Finster arranged garbage as if it was precious gave me a kind of hungry hope. It changed the way I saw things. And it's why the place stuck in my mind forever after. Finster made people who felt like castoffs feel like they were precious too. Finster had what I would describe were freedom dreams, dreams of life. His art went on to be displayed across the country, the Smithsonian, the Met, in Atlanta. In fact, uh, two of his art pieces wound up on the, on the album covers, uh, one of them for REM and the other for the Talking Heads. When I think Finster, when I think about Finster, I really can't help but ask this question to myself, but also to you. What are your dreams and visions? What are the embers that burn in you? What are the dreams and the visions that God is giving you to make this world a better place, to set things right? The reason that God gives the Spirit is not for all the technicolor Hollywood stuff. It's so that we can live in the light of those dreams in new ways so we can live with and for one another. That's what those dreams and those visions are for. And you, you are all flesh. The Spirit has also been given to you. It's in there. You just have to find it. I pray you let those dreams be unlocked and those visions be unlocked. Amen.